On January 24, 2004, James J. Davis went to a big party at the Brooklyn Masonic Temple to celebrate his little brother Daniel's birthday. James's night was cut short when he drank too much and vomited several times. Daniel put him in a cab to meet with his girlfriend, Kaneen Johnson. Two hours later, a big fight broke out in the club, resulting in their friend Jamel Black being stabbed and another man, Blake Harper, being shot and killed. Police would interview people at the scene to get a description of the shooter, a light-skinned black man with braids. But James didn't have braids at the time. He had short hair with waves. Police then called stabbing victim Jamel Black's home and spoke to his sister, who happened to be James's spurned ex, Tina Black, who casually named James as the shooter, even though she had never even been at the party in the first place. Police found Jamel at the hospital, who told them the identity of the real shooter, Tay Hall. So, was it Tay or Jay? Two weeks later, Jose Machicote, who was at the club that night, would enter the precinct and second Tina Black's identification. About six weeks after that, James found himself the target of an interrogation, a sham lineup, and a murder charge. Only after his case was picked up by the Legal Aid Society was it revealed that Jose Machicote was actually one of the most dangerous drug dealers in Brooklyn and the subject of a joint FBI-NYPD investigation. Machicote was murdered five months after his false testimony that sent James to prison for the rest of his life. This is Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig with details. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. That's me. I'm your host. And today you're going to hear a story that when they write the, the history of wrongful convictions, they could put this on the cover because this story is so outrageous that, well, you're just going to have to hear it for yourself. Hello. This is a prepaid collect call from Shay, an inmate at New York State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. To accept charges, press one to refuse charges press two if you would like thank you for using securus you may start the conversation now on the phone from prison where he's been for almost 20 years we have james j davis hello jay thanks for calling in and i hope that we'll be able to make a difference and and with us today we have elizabeth felber who is the supervising attorney in the wrongful conviction unit of the legal aid society thank you for having us Let's go back to the beginning. James, you had a rough childhood growing up in Brownsville in Brooklyn, right? Yeah, very. My mother and my father weren't really in my life. It was more my grandmother and my brother. School was good up until maybe fifth, sixth grade, where where you start noticing that your clothes ain't the same as everybody else's and people pick on you and stuff like that. My father died when I was in fourth grade. Roughly two years later, my mother passed away. The year before that, my brother father passed away, so both of us had no parent. By the time I reached sixth grade, 
Did you feel like a certain amount of responsibility, you know, as an older sibling at that point? Um, I think I had all of the responsibility. I had to watch after my little brothers. I had to keep people from picking on him outside as well as keep people from picking on me and bullying me. So that's when the fight started happening. I started getting into a lot of trouble. You know, everybody has uh, your mother joke. I've got to imagine that they stung a lot more with all you'd been through already. So now you're staying at grandma's, looking out for your younger brother, but who's looking out for you? By the time I was 14, I was getting beat a lot. I had a cousin who was supposed to be disciplining me for getting in trouble in school and in the neighborhood. And it was kind of excessive. So what ended up happening, I started running to the streets as much as I could for as long as I could. I was doing a lot of stupid stuff. I was young. I was robbing people. I was selling weed or whatever the older the older guys on the corner might be able to supply. And that's when you ended up in juvie. Yes. When when I when I make it to juvie, I'm going to school and I met this teacher, a guy named Mr. Bliss. Very, very, very smart guy. Like he knew something about anything or whatever you wanted to ask. I liked that he, he had that much knowledge and I confided in him about schooling and he convinced me to take my GED. And I ended up passing. After I passed, he was like, you can go to community college and skip going to high school now for every education. I was taking like biology and, and global history or economics classes and he was giving me credit for it. Somebody had come and check my work. So I understand you were accepted to Cape for your community college in North Carolina near where your aunt lived. No small feat considering your record, but your probation officer wouldn't transfer your supervision out of state. So you were trying to get yourself into some computer science classes locally. Around that time, I found out that my brother was into the streets. And that's pretty much where I got back involved in the streets, selling weed and being there for this case. Elizabeth. Take us back to January 24, 2004. What happened that fateful night? Okay, so January 24th was his brother Daniel's birthday. And Daniel wanted to go to a party that was being held at a Masonic Temple Lodge where they, they hosted events. It was a party for people with January birthdays. Well, my brother's birthday was coming up. It was more, whatever you want to do, I'm going to participate. B.O. is... An older guy from the neighborhood that he's like a, a well-liked guy. He does parties. He knew my brother as well. Two of them was promoting the party. B.O. and another guy. I don't know which one of them. My brother, he'd been talking about his birthday for a long time. So they put him on the flyer, I guess. Jay was not really a party goer. He was a quiet guy. I think he'd tell you himself he'd rather stay home with friends, smoke weed. Um, but he loved his brother. He was fiercely protective. So he decided to go with them as well. On my brother's birthday, my plan was to, like, we just going to chill, maybe call up some girls to come hang out at the projects with us, tell them they can drink for free and hang out. He was bent on going to the party because his name was on the flyer. So it comes to be almost 12 o'clock. And I wanted to surprise my brother, so I walked to the liquor store before it closed to get a bottle of Moet and a bottle of Hennessy. And when I got back, my brother was like, oh, I forgot the party. And Jay was not a big drinker, so by the time he got to the party, he had had a few already. And then he persuaded the bouncer to let him, or one of the hosts, to let him combine the two drinks he was drinking, which were Hennessy and champagne. Uh, kind of a disgusting combination. He threw them, to, you know, he put them together. He went into the party and he proceeded to have a few more drinks in the bathroom because they told him, okay, you can have your own drink, but you have to put some shade on it. Before you know it, I was trying to rush my drinks so that we can actually get out the bathroom. I wanted to see what the party was really like. Plus my brother, he don't smoke. So he's out on the dance floor most of the time anyway. So I'm like, I want to get out there and actually enjoy some of his birthday with him. And... The mixture didn't agree with me. The, the Hennessy and the, the Moet turned my stomach over. That was the start of the end of the night. I, I threw up maybe once or twice in the bathroom. And before I knew it, through the laughing, I hear my brother pretty much like, 
come on, man. Now I got to take you back home. We just got here. We ain't even fully been in the club long enough. Through negotiation, I just told him, I, I just walk me outside. I catch a cab and I go to my girlfriend's house. So they went outside. They got a cab and James called his girlfriend, Kaneen Johnson, and took the cab to her place. And she met him outside. Her mother didn't like James, so they would stay with her aunt. I got there at 2.45, maybe 3. So when I got there, she's sitting on the steps already. I step out the cab. I think I threw up in between cars before I even touched the sidewalk. She came running down the steps, rubbed my back, I think, and walked to her aunt house, stopped at the store, and went into her aunt house. And that was it. I think she even had a, a couple of jokes. She's like, here y'all go again. So he was long gone before anything happened at the party, which was around four in the morning. A fight broke out and somebody was seriously stabbed. We now know that was Jamel Black. And Blake Harper was shot and killed. A couple other people were shot, but not seriously. But um, James had already left the party hours earlier. So you wake up the next morning at your girlfriend Kaneen's, her aunt's house, really. And one of the guys you were with, Jamel Black, had been stabbed the night before. How did you hear that news? Her aunt woke both of us up. The news is on. It's about the Masonic Temple. Immediately, I call my house on the landline, and first thing I ask is, is my brother there? My grandmother, she's like, yeah, he came in last night. He's in the room sleep. You know they had a fight, right? And I asked for my aunt, because my aunt would probably know more than my grandmother would. And my aunt is like, yeah, Jamel got stabbed. And, and this guy got stabbed, and somebody got killed. But nobody knew who the guy was that got killed. So I'm like, I'm coming over there. I got there. My brother pretty much told me, oh, I wasn't really involved in it, but it was crazy in there. A fight broke out, people shooting, girls screaming, and everybody running. Police had responded to the scene, and they interviewed a number of people at the club, and no one that they interviewed knew the identity of the shooter, but he was described as a young, light-skinned black male with braids on the back of his head. Now, um, James, is that an accurate description of you at that time? No. I actually didn't have braids at the time. I had a low Caesar, like waves. So police have already interviewed witnesses at the scene the night before. Your friend who was stabbed, Jamel Black, they call his house, but they get his sister on the phone instead. Now, James, you have a storied past with this young woman, correct? Tina Black, like the first girlfriend I ever had. We've never done anything together, but we've been like close friends ever since being boyfriend and girlfriend at like eight or nine years old. And when I went to juvie, me and her made contact again somehow, and we was talking about pretty much moving in with each other when I came home. But when I came home from juvie, it was like, I don't know, she gave me, like, the cold showed up. I did three and a half years almost. I'm coming home to a girlfriend thinking that, you know, sex is, like, right there on the list. One of the first things after seeing each other's family and, and kicking it for a little bit, in her mind, it was like, nah, I'm, I'm not trying to do that. So I was like, not really to be pressuring, peer pressuring or anything, but this is stuff that we've been speaking about for like over a year already. After that day, we never spoke as girlfriend and boyfriend again, but we'd see each other in passing and we always remain cordial, but we never spoke on a relationship or any of that stuff ever again. What we learned was that Tina Black still harbored a flame for him and was hugely jealous when she found out that he had a new girlfriend. And out of spite, she told the police that James did the shooting, even though you can tell by the only police record on her, she wasn't at the party that night. She was very sick with juvenile diabetes, too sick to go to a party. The police should have known that she wasn't at the party. And yet they just focused on him. The second page of the detective notebook says, Perp, James Davis, J. So it's just tunnel vision from then on out. Right. So the people that were there couldn't identify the suspect. The woman who wasn't there does identify a suspect. And of course, we know that Tina later on confessed to her mother and to others that she had lied to the police. It just seems like so many different things went wrong that didn't need to, right? And this now we're up to the part where the detectives went to the hospital, right? And they interviewed Jamel Black. So could you can you talk about that a little bit? 
Sure. So the detectives actually went to the hospital the day of the incident and they were told he was just coming out of surgery. He was too out of it. The doctors wouldn't let him interview Jamel. Jamel testified at our hearing and he told the court that what happened was those detectives came back later and they wanted to know what happened. And at first he wasn't really engaging with them, but then they made it seem like they thought he was the shooter. Which makes sense because if there's a brawl and one person gets shot and the other person gets stabbed, you kind of think that they're they're somehow related. And so because of that, Jamel told them what happened, which was he had been stabbed by the guy who was subsequently killed. And this guy named Tay Hall was helping him out of the party when he says, oh, shit, pushes Jamel to the ground and you hear shots fired. Jamel looks up and he sees Tay putting a gun back in his pocket and saying, I got to get out of here. The police are coming. But there was no written report about that conversation and it never came out. At the hearing, the judge said, oh, it's just not credible that they wouldn't have a report about it. Well, it's also not credible that you wouldn't interview the person who was stabbed because they would most likely have the most relevant information. So let's fast forward then to a couple of months after the shooting, right? And that's when the Warren squad came. They were actually looking for your younger brother when they arrested you. And you weren't even aware that they were looking for you because you knew that you didn't have anything to do with this. And there was no reason to suspect you of anything other than being drunk and throwing up on the sidewalk. Um, And they arrested you and brought you to the precinct and interrogated you for hours and hours. Maybe they thought you were going to confess or something, like maybe even a false confession, but you never did. No. They took me from my house and under the guise that I had a warrant, which I did. I did have a warrant for disorderly conduct and do community service, but they never took me to the court building. They took me down to like homicide headquarters where I met Detective Hutchinson for the first time before they took me to the precinct. At the precinct, they they pretty much was asking me, do I know Jamel Black and do I know what happened to Jamel Black? So I explained to them the same thing that I just was telling you about, getting drunk and leaving, the party, and that seemed all right. They left, and then they came back, and they were still asking me about the party and where I was at. So I gave them more detail of who I went with, who actually walked me to the door, whatever, where I went after I left the party, and they left again. But this time, I'm I'm, I'm feeling funny. I'm like, why do you keep asking me where was I at? The next time he came in, I think he started asking about the shooting. Do you know the guy that got killed? And I'm like, I don't know the guy that got killed, but I know one of the guys that got shot because I went to school with him as well, but I don't know the guy that got killed. And... From there, I don't I don't remember exactly the rest of the questions, but it was pretty much all about the shooting there. So I'm like, when when am I going to court? I'm supposed to be going to court. They're like, no, what we're going to do is we're going to put you in a lineup. I'm like, a lineup? I need a lawyer. He's like, do you have a lawyer? I'm like, no, I don't have a lawyer, but I have a lawyer in my family who, who can come and represent me. And he asked me for his name and, and phone number. I'm like, I don't have a phone number for him. But he should be listed. My uncle Robert, Robert Davis, is a lawyer. I want somebody present. But he tells me if I don't have a number for him, then he can't call him. Then they just took me back to the room and left me in the room. And from there, it went to the lineup. And they came back with four guys. Three of them is dark skin. Two of them heavy set. Like, no, this can't be the people that they're going to put in the lineup with me. Nobody looks like me. Nobody favors me in no way, shape, or form. But I'm like, this can't be. Then he bring two more guys in, like Indian-looking guys. But I'm like, nah, this is a this is a fix. Liz, can you tell us a little bit about it, this lineup and, and how things went so wrong? As he says in his own statement, this is not a fair lineup. So the lineup in itself was already suggestive, but there were three people who um, viewed the lineup. Um, one of them was Jose Machicote. He was the first witness that they brought in to view a photo spread about six weeks earlier, and it was unclear why he was 
called. He was the brother-in-law of the man who died, but he was not one of the people that had been originally interviewed. It's pretty common knowledge that when you've picked someone out of a photograph, you pick them again in the lineup because you recognize them as the person. But the lineup happened six weeks later. At the lineup, um, the two other witnesses, Harold Poe and Sean Belton, they were brought there by the mother of the deceased. And according to their testimony, she called them and said, they have the guy they think who did it at um, the precinct and they want you to just come to see if you can you know, identify him or something to that effect. That's already contaminating the lineup because there's a pressure put on them that this is the person, they have the person. They feel compelled to sit, pick one person, especially, especially when the mother of the deceased has chauffeur driven you to the precinct. So they picked James, but one of them said always from the beginning, well, he resembles him except for the braids because when James got arrested, his hair was short. And the other guy, Sean Belton, now originally he had said, I didn't see anything when the police spoke to him. Now he said, oh, I just said that because I was afraid. But the description he gave before he viewed him was of someone wearing a scully cap. And that's nowhere in any description and also 5'10". And James is like 5'7". So he didn't even describe someone that looked like James. So that's how they picked him. There was a fourth person at the lineup who did not testify at the trial or the hearings. And what Detective Hutchinson said about him was, oh, he picked him out. He just wouldn't sign the the sheet saying he had. Again, you know, those, some things just your alarm goes off. That smells fishy. So um, we caught up with him. He did not want to be involved. He made that 150% clear. But what he told us was, no, I never said that was the guy. That's why I wouldn't sign. And what I said to them was, if you say that's the guy, that's the guy. So to me, that says they were being prompted to pick James. And I should just add that Sean Belton at the second trial recanted again and said, I just glanced at him. He gave four separate statements. So that was him. And the other guy always only said he resembled him. So essentially, it really came down to Jose Machicote. When you think about the, the convenience of Tina Black Jr. giving my name to, to the detective, and then a week later, Jose Machicote, the drug dealing, violent robber, who's a humble barber now, just happens to walk into the precinct. Though he didn't stay at the crime scene when everything happened, he fled the crime scene. He walks into the precinct and he picks my picture. He's the only one that goes to the precinct and it just so happens that he's known in this neighborhood. To me, the whole the whole case is weird from beginning to end. I think that this was a misunderstanding maybe from Speaking to Jamel Black and him telling him the story he told him about Tay, then them asking his sister about Tay, and she telling him Jay. And they just went from there with the easiest thing that they could do to close the case. And, and it just so happened to be that I was convenient for them. This episode is sponsored by AIG, a leading global insurance company, and Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison, a leading international law firm. The AIG Pro Bono Program provides free legal services and other support to many nonprofit organizations and individuals most in need. And recently, they announced that working to reform the criminal justice system will become a key pillar of the program's mission. Paul Weiss, has long had an unwavering commitment to providing impactful pro bono legal assistance to the most vulnerable members of our society and in support of the public interest, including extensive work in the criminal justice area. After the lineup, they told me I was being charged with murder and he offered me a deal pretty much. Detective Hutchinson asked me to tell him that I did it because he already heard about the story of what happened. Somebody told him that two groups of guys was fighting and the guy in one of the groups had a knife and the guy in the other group had a gun. And he shot the guy with the knife to defend himself. Like, if you tell me that, then I can help you. I speak to the DA, I'm like, what the hell kind of shit is that? Why the fuck would I tell you I did something that I'm telling you I wasn't even aware of, I wasn't there for it? He's like, you know, if I was you, I would have did the same thing if it was me. A guy comes at me with a knife and I got a gun, I would have shot him too. You ain't do nothing wrong. I was like, but you want me to admit to something I didn't do? That's wrong right there. 
and told him, if you would have told me that this what this was about from the beginning, I probably would have never spoke to you. I wouldn't have tried to help you. But here it is, I tried to help you, and I turned out to be the one going to jail pretty much. They fingerprinted me and put me in a, a holding cell for the rest of the night. So now things go from bad to worse, right? The trial, there's a number of problems at both trials, although the first trial amazingly ended up, and, and it's, you know, it hurts me to say this, and I know you must have had a lot of sleepless nights over this, James, but the first trial, in spite of the fact that you had substandard defense, you still ended up with an 11 to 1 hung jury in favor of acquittal. I rarely hear that. So talk about the trial from your perspective, James. So as trial is going on, I'm reading the paperwork that they gave me the day before my trial actually started. I'm still going through paperwork and I'm noticing that, you know, they black out the names so you don't know who's who. But I'm listening to the stories and now it's making sense with the DD5s from the police station because now I'm seeing, oh, this is the guy that said he never seen nothing at the crime scene that changed his story the other two times to this story now, which happened to be Sean Belton. His first statement to the police at the crime scene was, I never seen what happened. I was talking to two girls and shots went off and I ducked for cover to protect myself. I never seen anything. Havel told throughout the whole thing, he never identified me from the precinct to trial. He only told the officers that it was two guys that looked like each other that had the fight and the shooting and everything. And he only referred to me as looking similar to one of the guys. And at trial, he said I resembled a guy that he seen at the precinct. He never picked me out and said definitively that's him right there that I seen doing the shooting. Like, you have this this one guy, Jose Machicote, who's blaming the cause of this murder on his brother-in-law while the two prosecutors' witnesses beside him are saying that he started the whole fight. You have a conflict between your own witnesses where they're pointing the finger at this guy saying that he did X, Y, and Z that caused us to come over and be of assistance to him. But this is your main witness, Jose Machicote, and he's saying that I had nothing to do with it. I'm a humble barber. I, I never committed a crime again after I was locked up all of those years ago. But here it is. You got two witnesses that you're putting on stand. You want us to believe that they identified me, but you don't want us to believe that they're saying that this guy's lying and he started the fight that led to this shooting and stabbing. Did you think you were going to be exonerated as you should have been? I thought that I would be at the first trial because the jury that we have, they was asking questions that were relevant that should have stood out to the police officers that did the investigation, to the DA's office that got the paperwork from the police officers. And though my lawyer didn't put on the best case, the jurors used their common sense. Kaneen Johnson, his girlfriend, did testify at the first trial. I think that in part was part of what um, led to the 11 to 1 acquittal, that she was a very persuasive witness because she was very persuasive at the hearing as well. She's explaining to them how I came to the house, us uh, staying over at her aunt's place. She explained pretty much why uh, her mother didn't like me as much or why we didn't stay at her mother's house. Because her mother was like a, a CO or ex-CO at the time. So it was like kind of a conflict of interest. This guy that's selling weed and always smoking with no job. I guess she didn't think I was good enough for her daughter. The first trial ended up with an 11 to 1 hung jury in favor of acquittal. Even the judge said it. Something must be wrong if 11 of your peers see things one way and you go against that. But at the second trial, the DA is saying that I threatened one of the witnesses. Havel Poe didn't really change his testimony. We had his testimony read into the record because throughout the whole thing, he never identified me. He only referred to me as looking similar to one of the guys. Sean Belton recants, but it's I can't really consider that recanting because 
he went back to the initial statement that he never seen anything. The other person that they say picked me out of a photo array, never signed on none of the pictures, but the detective is saying, I made a mark next to the picture that he picked out because he wouldn't sign it. It's like, that don't even make sense. The only only witness that they have was Jose Machicoti that actually positively picked me out of a lineup. And we find out later that the state's sole remaining witness, Jose Machicote, the testimony on which the whole case rested was not the humble barber that the state made him out to be, but actually a full-time drug dealer, right? Prone to violence and under a joint investigation by the FBI and NYPD. And all you needed was your star witness, Kanine Johnson, to show up and counter Machicote, just like she did at the first trial. But at the second trial, I'm not with my girlfriend anymore. So our contact is kind of really touch and go where she know that I'm only calling to notify her of court dates and what's going on with my life, which she's trying to avoid, I guess. I don't know. But in Kaneen Johnson, the day before she was supposed to come in or two days before we spoke, and then I didn't hear nothing from her. My lawyer said he spoke to her and she was supposed to be coming in, and then she didn't show up but she was still being nice to him on the phone. He called her again, and then she cursed him out. She told him that he sent police to her house at like one in the morning. But we learned that day in the courtroom that it wasn't actually my lawyer that sent the police, that it was the district attorney who subpoenaed her. Even though in court she said, I never planned on calling this girl as a witness because I don't know what she's gonna say. Even though she heard what my witness said at the first trial, it was well known at my case that her mother didn't like me. But they still subpoenaed her and sent police to her house at like one in the morning, well, her mother's house, which actually infuriated her mother and caused her mother to kick her out. That right there pretty much sealed the deal as far as her coming to court. And at that point, I was asking, like, put me on the stand. If she not going to come in, I'm the only thing we got left. You ain't do nothing else with nobody else, so put me on the stand. Like, they're going to eat you alive with your, with your prior history and stuff. They eat you alive, and the jury see that, then they're going to find you guilty. That's the last thing I wanted, so I'm no lawyer. I'm going to let him guide me, and he found me guilty. Anyone who's listening is probably wondering right now, well, if if I was representing him back then, I, I would have checked the cell phone records. Or I would have checked the cab records. We could have gotten a hold of the cab company and see if anybody, because you took a cab, right? And none of that stuff was done, right? The weird thing is, out of all of the easy stuff that we think of that could have been done, my attorney at the time hired a chiropractor or a child doctor to do medical examiner work. And I've never even seen the medical examiner work or any paperwork that he had done. But he didn't go and check a cab. He didn't go and speak to none of these witnesses that's in the DD files from the police reports. But you found a, a, a doctor to play as a medical examiner from your office building. It's sad to say, but if you don't have money to actually pay for a lawyer, then the justice system doesn't really work for you. It's rare that it does. You rarely come across lawyers like Susan and Liz or people like you that actually go out of their way to help somebody out to show that they're innocent. And I appreciate every bit of it. Look, the officer is telling me that I have to get off the phone. He He's uh, pressing now because of the time frame, I guess, because we was really only supposed to get like half hour phone calls. No problem. I can do that around a couple of guys that, that, that are friendly here, that know my situation, that wanted to make sure that everything was all right. But go back either, either today or tomorrow or whenever I can. Thank you again. Thank you again. I appreciate y'all. And I hope you all have a nice day. I will speak to you soon. Yeah, we'll be back in touch for sure. All right. Later. Bye, Jay. The caller has hung up.
What an unbelievably calm and gentle spirit he's got. It's Here he is in this chaotic situation in a maximum security prison in the time of COVID with people whose phone time he's sort of, you know, borrowing or whatever and guards who are going, hey, you know, like, and yet he is so focused, which makes me even more sad thinking about the lost potential that that a simple act of kindness from that parole officer 20 something years ago could have just avoided this whole thing. And God knows what he'd be doing with his life now, contributing to society and probably building a family and everything else. So, um, so meanwhile, the story goes on. Mr. Machicote was murdered by a drug dealer five months after James's second trial. Yes. Um, after he was trying to rob the drug dealer for, for the second time in a month. Um, <laughs> right. So, yeah, he was tortured and killed. And I mean, this is some Quentin Tarantino stuff now, but this is the guy that the authorities were painting to be a wonderful citizen who was yes. bravely coming forward. And now he's a simple barber and blah, blah, blah. So that's all out the window. But there was also Brady violations in this case. Right. So can you talk? Can you speak to that? So we learned this um, as the hearing was going on, the actual innocence hearing that we litigated last summer and we're appealing now. Um, it was actual innocence and ineffective assistance of counsel. That's when we finally got eight witnesses in to talk um, and support James's story of innocence. So um, during our hearing, I reached out to the assistant U.S. attorney because people were prosecuted federally for killing Machicote. And through it, I met the FBI agent who told me that at the time of the trial, Jose Machicote was under their investigation. It was a joint NYPD FBI investigation into drug dealing, major drug dealing in Brownsville. And lo and behold, in the spring, which was when the second trial was happening, a confidential informant was buying huge quantities of heroin and cocaine from Machicote. Now, we don't know if the assistant district attorney knew that, but it's hard to believe that the detective who used to be a narcotics detective in Brownsville did not know that this man was a one of the major most violent drug dealers in Brooklyn and be under you know investigation by the FBI. So that was never disclosed. No, that would have been an inconvenient fact to bring up as they were trying <laughs> to present him as the perfect witness, right? So, right. He was so brave. <laughs> yeah. So there's the Brady violation because this wouldn't be complete without that, right? Right. So they have an obligation to turn over this information that they knew about. And that's what we believe happened here. And yes, it does seem like that happens all the time. And what was in it for Machicote? Um, you know, I don't want to go down too deep a rabbit hole of conspiracy theories, but that he was on parole the night of this murder. He had violated parole by being out past his curfew. And the fight that Jay was referring to, a lot of the police reports say a Spanish guy wearing a fur coat grabbed a bottle within a fight on the floor. That was Machicote. So that was also a violation of parole. So I don't know whether they threatened him with having him locked up, whether there was something corrupt going going on. You know, it was the 75th precinct, which is notorious. Um, and it's had some you know, problems with corruption over the years. I don't know what happened. Even the FBI agent, although he said, you know, he was on a bad guy list. That's what he how he referred to Machicote, um, which is a computer database that you're supposed to check for any witness. And in fact, the day they interviewed the witnesses at the club, they did hide a checks on those witnesses, but there's no hide a check in the paperwork for Machicote. So there's just something fishy about Machicote and why they're so protective of him. And all we do know is that when the prosecutor got up in summation and said, he's such a credible witness and you know he's credible because he was so honest about his past and now he's a barber. Well, he might have been honest about his past, but he wasn't really honest about his present. So, you know, in addition to the problems with, you know, ID evidence in a situation like that, you also have this unsavory character pretending to be someone that he's not. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's exhausting. This, this one's actually exhausting. It's exhausting. <laughs> Tell me about it. I'm still writing the brief for the appeal. So none of that's disclosed to the defense of James's second trial, right? And right. we know about the whole Machicote thing. Of course, it's almost like a, an exclamation point on the whole thing that he ends up, I mean, I'm sorry the guy got murdered, but so such a short time after this, as if right. to really just drive this home, 
you know, he ends up in like a scene from Reservoir Dogs being tortured to death by a guy who he was trying to rob for a second time, a drug dealer. I mean, nice witness. Right. And the first time he he entered at gunpoint and tied them up and robbed them. So it wasn't his first rodeo. No, and it sounds like they turned the tables on him, and, and then he, yes. he, met, he met his demise and took this right. uh, this false testimony he presented to the grave with him. Yes. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Now, you know, we get to the post-conviction investigation, and of course you had a meeting with the Conviction Review Unit in Brooklyn, and this would seem to be one little ray of light. So where do we stand with that? So uh, that was actually before I became involved in in the case. Um, Susan Epstein, who did the appeal and did a phenomenal investigation, brought the witnesses to the Conviction Review Unit. They had the case incredibly for five years. It's not exactly clear what happened, but one refrain that is throughout the transcripts of those interviews is, why didn't you come forward sooner? The assistant district attorney assigned to this case just seemed very suspicious from the beginning. And she gave some of them a really hard time. But she got a lot of this information. I mean, she went to prisons and she spoke to Jamel Black, who's currently incarcerated. And he told her that it was Tay who did the shooting. And she also fixated on um, some inconsistencies that I think are not material. The story that was told was coherent. Each witness corroborated one another. The vast majority of the witnesses told them that Jay's hair was short. He cut his hair because he had some kind of skin condition. So just like you'd remember a party because you were throwing up all night, you'd remember that someone had short hair because they thought it was ringworm. It's not entirely clear that's what it was, but it was some skin condition that they remembered and his hair was short, but they had all this information. And honestly, I, I don't know why they dragged their feet and they never came right out and said, we don't believe you. We think he's guilty. Even after we brought the motion and started the hearing, they said to the press, you know, we're still looking into it or something to that effect. But for some reason, they just were unpersuaded. That's weird. I mean, look, there's even inside of a conviction review unit like Brooklyn, where we'd like to think that everybody is on top of their game. Um, I I don't know. I can't really explain. You have these witnesses who are actually bravely coming forward now, right? And there's lots of them, right? It's not like this is one person. These are people who are, you know, members of the community who who are not kids anymore either. And I think it's also worthwhile to mention why James's brother Daniel and Tina Black were unavailable to testify. Tina, the young woman who named James in the first place, is sadly no longer with us. In 2013, she died of complications related to the very diabetes that had kept her from the party that fateful night all the way back in 2004. And sadly, Daniel, James's younger brother, who put him in the cab that night, tragically was murdered in 2012. 
So now the Brooklyn CRU hasn't come to a decision and they still could do something about it if they so choose. But you and Susan Epstein weren't going to wait around for that. And that brings us to the hearing we've been referring to this entire time. You and Susan filed a 440 motion, which is New York legalese for a motion to set aside the judgment. That was in September 2018. And you argued for James's actual innocence, as well as ineffective assistance of counsel and newly discovered evidence at this hearing back in June of 2019. Yes, we were pretty optimistic going into it. So we had eight witnesses, including James. Uh, James went first, as you saw, he's very intelligent, um, humble, low-keyed, and um, I think he makes a good impression. And he went first. And also, so they couldn't say, oh, of course he said this. He sat through the whole hearing and listened to what everyone else said. So he told the story that you heard, you know, about leaving because he was intoxicated. And then Jamel Black came in. And one thing about Jamel Black that was really, I think, very persuasive, he had initially refused to cooperate and sent a letter to Susan saying, he ruined my life because he had, um, James had slept with his girlfriend when he was locked up at Rikers and he held a grudge. And he even told me when we were preparing to testify, he goes, yeah, it's a bad quality I have. I get it from my father. I can really hold a grudge. But he came in and he told the whole story. First of all, he helped walk uh, James out to the car, but then they started to get into a fight about this girlfriend again. And he went inside and he met up with Tay, the shooter. So he told the whole story about how he got stabbed because his younger brother was involved in the fight. And he went over and he heard this guy say, you thought this was over. He turned around, and he was stabbed. So he, he goes through the whole incident of how the stabbing happened and how the shooting happened and how it was Tay. Um, and then how he told this to the police. We also had the woman who cut his hair, who, although she didn't remember exactly when she cut it. She did remember that she told him it was breaking off and that he had to cut it. And that the last time she saw him, his hair was short. And you had Corey Hines, who was at the party in the bathroom laughing at him as he was throwing up. Um, Sadly, his brother had signed an affidavit saying, I put him in a cab and sent him to his girlfriend's house. He was murdered um, in 2012. So we, you know, didn't have his him as a witness. We had his affidavit and we believe the judge should have allowed that into evidence and he didn't. Um, And we had Kaneen Johnson, the girlfriend who didn't show up at the second trial. We actually had to do what's called a material witness order to have her arrested to bring her in, which I really didn't want to do. But she came in, even though she was mad at me about that, she got on the stand. So when that happens, they assign an attorney to you. And the attorney came in and said to the judge, she's willing to testify, but she's terrified of the family. And what came out on the witness stand is that after she testified at the first trial, friends and family of the deceased followed her, not just out of the courtroom, but out of the courthouse, calling her names, threatening her. If we're going to find out where you live, if we see you on the street. And it was so bad that James's attorney put her in a cab because he was afraid of her having to take public transportation home. So here she is. She hasn't seen James since the first trial. And she gets on and she essentially says exactly what she testified to years before that, you know, she met him at her mother's house. He got out of the car. He was staggering like stupid drunk is kind of how she put it and and threw up and she got him a ginger ale at a bodega and they walked to his hand. So she told that entire story. The two new witnesses that I found also particularly compelling, one was in the statement by James, he refers to B.O. His real name is Ernest. Ernest was one of the promoters. And we found him and he was willing to testify. And like a few days before he testified, we asked him, well, how is it that you remember that he was there? And he said, because we used to have a competition about who had the better waves in our hair. So I remember when he came in and I was joking about whose waves were better. So unprompted, he basically said he had short hair at the time. So he said that on the witness stand. And he also said somebody had thrown up by the bar and he asked the bouncer what happened here. And he said, oh, you know, those two brothers, one of them was drunk and I told them they had to leave. So that was information we didn't even know about. And then lastly, and maybe the most emotionally compelling witness was Tina Black Sr., the mother. So she came in, you know, with the cane. She's like crippled by arthritis. She 
basically was racked with guilt that she knew her daughter, her daughter eventually confessed to her. And, and she went through all this stuff about they got a call one day from Rikers and her kids were there. And she said, who's at Rikers? Uh, and they said, James. And she said, why is James at Rikers? And one of the sons said, ask your dumbass daughter. So like she remembered little details like that. And then bit by bit, her daughter revealed to her that she had set James up and that he was never coming home and that she was still in love with him. So that was extremely compelling testimony. So that was essentially our case. It was like so many people who, you know, added little bits and pieces to the story and created this really cohesive story about what really happened there that nobody bothered to investigate. Then there's another sort of what what could be seen as a devastating blow that took place on January 24, 2020, 16 years to the day after Blake Harper was tragically murdered. The judge denied James Davis's wrongful conviction motion in its entirety. I remember reading that the first time. Right. And going, oh, God. Right. What is we were stunned. Um, so he, yeah, he ruled against us on everything. We By the end of the hearing, we had three points. One was that we had proved James was actually innocent by clear and convincing evidence. That's the standard. That his lawyer was ineffective by not doing a proper investigation. Um, he didn't even hire an investigator. That's what James was referring to when he said he hired a doctor. He hired a doctor who appeared to have been his brother to review the medical records. So he knew what he had to do to get paid to hire someone. So we had an ineffective assistance of counsel point. And then we asked the judge to reopen the hearing so that we could call this FBI agent so that we could show that they would have known about this evidence that Machicote was not just a humble barber, but he was a major drug dealer in Brooklyn. And the judge refused to reopen the hearing originally said, I'll sign a subpoena for an FBI agent because you have to subpoena them, then changed his mind on that said you didn't prove it, but he didn't give us a chance to completely prove it. And um, so he denied every aspect of our hearing. And now there's really literally one stop left on this. Um, you don't get to appeal these, they call them 440 hearings in New York. You don't get to appeal a 440 as a matter of right. You have to ask permission. It's called seeking leave to appeal. And we did get permission to appeal. So we are in the process of writing a brief. And this is the last stop. We are going to the second department appellate division and asking them first and foremost to find him innocent and dismiss these charges. Do you know when that hearing is going to be? We're shooting for September, um, hoping to get the brief filed in time for September. If it's not September, it will be October. There is a petition, and we're going to link to it in the episode description. So uh, for anyone who feels outraged as I do and wants to help James, uh, go to our um, episode description, and there will be links to take you to action steps that you can take. Hello, this is a prepaid collect call from Shay, an inmate at New York State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. To accept charges, press 1. To refuse charges, press thank you for using Securus. You may start the conversation now. Hello. Oh, James, uh, I'm glad you're back. Um, Elizabeth and I spoke a bit about your post-conviction litigation and where you're at now, legally speaking. I didn't know the justice system actually takes this long, but I thought maybe, you know, uh, two years I'll be back home. They'll fix this whole thing and I'll be home. Two years turned into 17, and I'm still fighting and trying to convince them that they actually locked up the wrong person. And then to compound this tragedy again, the little brother that you felt so responsible for was murdered in 2012. I mean, I can't possibly begin to imagine your pain, but your grandmother's still here. My brother and my grandmother is like, my oldest friend in the world. My grandmother been there for as long as I knew. I know she know my pain because she lost her mother and she lost her daughter the same way I did. Well, not the daughter, but my mother the same way she lost her mother. And my brother was there with me through everything. So it was like I lost out on what little I was able to spend of his life with him in 17 years of my grandmother's life. She just turned 80 June 19th. Like, she was 63. I just missed all of these birthdays and times to spend with her where I would have been an adult, where I could have actually... Because I just... I think that was my first Christmas ever actually 
really buying my grandmother my own gift. And she was so happy for that. I've been here for every year since. For something I didn't even do. I pray for her every night. I, I need her to be strong for me because that's one of the reasons that I live for her, like my grandmother. By the grace of God, she just turned 80, June 19th. My mother was murdered two weeks or yeah, a week and some change after Mother's Day, which was hard for my grandmother. And then my brother on Father's Day, right before her birthday. So it's like, I've, I've had a real, real rough journey. Her journey is just as rough. So this is why that's like my closest friend right there outside of my brother that passed away. The same beatings I got, he got. The same low-budget clothes or whatever you want to call them, I got, he got. The teasing in the neighborhood, in the house, over not having our parents or my mother being a crackhead, he got the same thing. We we endured everything together, so it was like, this the only person that really, really know my struggle. So to lose him while here, like, the hard blow. Yeah, I can't imagine. Your story, your life has exhausted, it's taken so much out of me, and I've only listened to it. I can't imagine having lived it. We need to do everything we can to bring you home, James. Um, I want to thank you. I mean, we have, as our regular listeners know, um, at the end of each episode, we have our featured segment, which I call Closing Arguments, and this is where I, first of all, thank you. And then I just kick back in my chair and turn my microphone off and leave my headphones on and and turn it over to you for whatever else you think needs to be said. So now, um, Liz, over to you for closing arguments. All right. Well, first of all, thank you so much for, for taking the time to listen and to speak to James and to get to know what a what a good person he is, what a smart, humble, kind person he is, and for giving us this chance to to tell his story to as many people as possible. There was from from the day he was arrested, I'm gonna get emotional, let me clear and convincing evidence of his innocence, not just clear and convincing, compelling evidence of his innocence. And he told everyone what they needed to do to learn that he was innocent. From the beginning, he told Detective Hutchinson, go speak to, he listed about six names. And, you know, from those six names, there would have been 25, 30 other people because this was a huge party and a lot of people knew him. But whether it was tunnel vision, a lack of respect or indifference, Detective Hutchinson did nothing to investigate. The prosecutor did nothing to investigate. And the person who, under the law, has the obligation to investigate did not do so. He kept telling James, well, it's their burden. It's not our burden. But this is a 21-year-old facing murder charges, facing life in prison, which he's now serving a life in prison sentence. Seems to me you have both a legal and a moral obligation to do everything you can to prove his innocence, to prove he's not guilty. That's the standard at a trial. When you have so much evidence, it's almost obscene to turn your back to it. And yet that's what happened at this trial. And yet 15 years afterward, these people came forward and, you know, they may know each other from the community, but somewhere in their 30s, somewhere in their 40s, somewhere in their 50s, they weren't all hanging out together, conspiring to tell a story to help James. They told different pieces and what they didn't remember, they said they didn't remember member, but each and every one of them painted a very vivid picture of a young man who loved his brother very much, who went to the party because he wanted to celebrate with his brother, who got stumbled down throwing up drunk, left the party kind of out of it, met his girlfriend, spent the night at her aunt's house, and wasn't even there when the shooting happened. And yet, incredibly, once again, the judge chose not to listen to James. In fact, in his decision, he said, well, you can't listen to anything he said because he's the defendant here. He's he's convicted. And of course, he has an overwhelming interest in the outcome, which is not the law. So he just disregarded everything James said, despite the fact that most of it was corroborated and substantiated by the other witnesses. You know, he, he also said you had to have direct evidence. There was no direct evidence that James went to his girlfriend's house that night. Well, there was 
a huge amount of circumstantial evidence. They walked him to the car so they didn't see the cab leave. I mean, circumstantial evidence is extremely compelling and used all the time in court. So he discounted circumstantial evidence. And he also wouldn't let us bring in Daniel's affidavit, even though, again, this federal law says when you're talking about actual innocence, you're allowed to bring in everything, even if it wouldn't come in ordinarily at a trial. So Daniel is dead. He was murdered. But we have his affidavit. And guess what? It says, I put him in a cab and it went to Kaneen's house. So we did have that piece, but we weren't allowed to put it in. So once again, justice was denied for James. And I think we've already been through just the shaky, questionable evidence that was the prosecution. This is the last chance. There's nothing after the second department appellate division. And I just I just hope people hear this and, and they're rightfully outraged and they demand justice for James because he really is innocent and he deserves to go home. That was well said. Thank you. Um, that beautiful closing argument, actually. I've heard a lot of them. Um, and now, James, over to you for closing arguments. You are an incredible uh, person. Your spirit comes through even over the phone even in the most uh, stressful situation, you are just uh, an inspiring guy. What can I say? And so uh, we're going to keep fighting for you out here. And I thank you for being on the show and shining a light on this awful injustice. And now I'll turn it over to you for closing arguments. Uh, I want to say thank you to you again. Thank you to Elizabeth Felber, Susan Epstein, the whole Legal Aid Society, everybody that's been helping me with my case. Without them, I probably would have gave up this fight. They kept me strong. They kept me motivated. With all of the stuff that's going on in the world today, is so much on my mind. I think that our justice system really needs to be looked at on the outside and on the inside. The treatment is really, really no different. And it's gone all the way. It starts at law enforcement with their investigations and, and the things that they may do. If they make one bad mistake, it may change somebody's life forever. And they're, they're human like everybody else. Everybody's entitled to make mistakes. But when you don't try to fix your mistakes, you just lie about them or cover them up. You only make things worse for, for people that should actually have a fair shot. You're stealing people's lives away from people. People's families actually still love them and, and care about them, and they're suffering just as much. More effort should be done on, on getting things right, opposed to just worrying about convictions and putting people away sometimes. Because in our haste, we, we make poor judgment decisions. We send people away that shouldn't be locked up. People do deserve to have a fair shot at whether it be trial, grand jury hearings, or even the benefit of the doubt when an officer comes and arrests you. It's no different on the inside. Not everybody in here deserves to be treated so harshly when you're already sentenced for a crime. You've already been punished. You don't come to prison to be punished more or tortured. You come to correct whatever bad behavior you was doing. You do your time that they gave you. Cause that's what they say. If you did the crime, do the time. But you're not supposed to be tortured and abused. What about the people that actually didn't do the crime? Is that just like a casualty of war? Metaphor, let him get tortured and beaten and everything too. It don't seem like fair and impartial trials are what actually takes place. They, they label you and then they send you away and then they make it hard for you to, to prove your innocence to get back out. Even when you do prove it, it's still hard for them to let you go. They saying, well, it sounds like he's telling the truth and it's the same thing. And we learned that these other guys were liars and all of these other things. But I don't know, maybe he's still guilty. Let's just keep him in there and, and double, triple, quadruple check and let him waste some more of his life away, even though he might be totally innocent. And it seems like he is from what we, we've been looking at, but not 100% sure. He didn't prove it to me 100%. Like, that's, that's crazy, that's insane. Is that what a human life is worth?
Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.